Welcome to the Church of Rocky Peaks downloadable messages and podcast. Glad you can join us. Inside the, uh, your weekend program is a white message uh, note sheet that we're going to be using throughout this series uh, to help us uh, as we go through. So I encourage you to take that out. And um, uh, this would be a great time. I know that there's a lot of you who are uh, kind of new here to, to this whole thing of following Jesus or just checking him out. And this would be a great time in this series to go out and get a Bible, maybe go to Costco and get one of their study Bibles or something like that. Um, and uh, they, uh, we, we have... Um, we have tabs here that are a resource center, and you can buy those tabs, and it kind of puts the books of the Bible in order, so you can find them very quickly. They're only $5 to the tabs. And the reason I mention that is we're going to be using our Bibles a lot, and, uh, and especially today, we're going to be flipping around like crazy. So if you're kind of new or just visiting, you don't have your Bible with you, we're just so glad you're here, and hopefully there'll be someone around you that will have a Bible that you can uh, share with them. So uh, we're ready to go. I'm pretty excited about this series. You looking forward to it? Yeah, here we go. Okay, let's, uh, let's pray together. <laughs> Father, thank you for what you're doing at our church. God, thank you for what you're doing in our lives. We would be part of this movement, God, that, uh, that you came to this earth to pick a fight. And, and then you called us to be part of that fight, part of that movement, taking new ground. And Lord, so I pray that as we move in this series, you'd create in us as a church the heart of a warrior, that we would not be kind of running away, huddling in fear, but we would realize that we're in the front lines, and you've called us there to take your mission to the world. And so uh, thank you for that. Thank you for this chance to be together. We pray you'd be with us every step of the way in this message, and you just guide over and cover it with your spirit. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, our story starts today in 1960. Uh, he was born in Milwaukee in the state of Wisconsin, and... He was born to a normal family. They thought he was a fairly normal child growing up. Everything seemed to be going fine until he, he was about six years old. And at six years old, he began to go through a, a series of traumatic experiences. Uh, the first one, he had a double hernia. He had to go in for surgery. And not sure exactly what happened, but it was very traumatic. He was never the same after that. He became more withdrawn, pulled back, not engaging with other students at school. When he was eight years old, his family, his dad got a job offer to move down to Ohio, and, and so he it was a great opportunity, so he moved down there, but for the eight-year-old son, just never really fit in to, with the other students. Later that year, when he was eight years old, he was molested by a neighbor. But parents didn't know it, didn't come out until many years later. And with each kind of blow, he became more and more withdrawn, more and more into himself, a little strange, a little weird, a little odd. By the time he was a teenager, he didn't really have any friends, and so he began to drink to, to deal with his, his misery that way. He became very antisocial, and the crowning blow uh, came when he was 18. When he was early as a teenager, he first began to drink. He, he looks back, and he, he remembers that it was at that point in time he began to have his first thoughts of murder, his first thoughts of like sexual abuse or sexual torture. When he was 18, his parents had been fighting for years, and they went through just a horrible divorce. I mean, it was knocked down, dragged out. It got, it got ugly, and it was the crowd, kind of the, the final blow to him. So later that year, when he was 18, he was driving down the road one day. There was a 19-year-old student who was hitchhiking by the side of the road. He pulled over, invited him into his car, took him back to his house, spent the night together. It was a night of sex. It was a night of drugs. It was a night of alcohol. When the young man decided it was time for him to leave, 
He wasn't allowed to leave. Our young man picked up a barbell and hit him in the side of the head, crushed his skull. Wasn't sure what to do with him now, and he had to hide his crime, and so he took him in the backyard. He cut him up into pieces and put him in black plastic bags. Took him out to the woods behind their house, dug a deep hole. This would become a pattern of his life, buried him. That fall, it was time for Ohio State, so he headed off to Ohio State. But it only took him one quarter to flunk out. He just couldn't hack it because of his alcohol abuse. He came back home. His dad was really concerned, so his dad signed him up for a six-year stint in the Army, thinking that might straighten him out. But within two years, he was kicked out of the Army for excessive drinking, which is really hard to do in the Army. (laughs) From that point on, his life went from bad to worse. Over the next few years, he'd be arrested more than once, indecent exposure, molesting a teenager, but when he's 17 years old, that his drive to murder kicked back into high gear. Over the next five years, he would lure 15 young men to his apartment. He would kill them, often committing acts of sexual crime against the corpse. And then after he was done, cutting up the body and at times actually eating parts of the body. In the last five months of those five years, his murder spree was increasing. In those five months, he killed eight young men. And over the last couple months, he was up to a rate of almost one death per week before he was arrested. Today, we're entering into a brand new series. It's a series on spiritual warfare. It's called The War, the story behind the story. One thing is clear as you go into the New Testament, as you read the teaching of Jesus, as far-fetched as it may seem in this modern day and age in our Western culture, that both Jesus and the New Testament are incredibly clear that you and I are involved in a cosmic war, a battle that's gone on from the beginning of time, that we have an enemy who's brilliant, who's powerful, who's strategic, and he's out to destroy us. The whole purpose of this series is to go behind the scenes to this unseen realm that the Bible talks about. We can understand how this war got started, who the enemy is, what his tactics are, and what it takes to win. And today we're going to start off with a passage in the New Testament. I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, one of the most famous passages in all the Bible on this war. We're only going to look at the first four verses today. We'll come back and look at the rest of the passage the very last week of this series. This is chapter uh, 6 of Ephesians and verse 10. Now, the Apostle Paul is writing in the book of Ephesians to a group of new Christians. They live in the metropolitan area of ancient Ephesus. They, uh, it's, a, it's an area that uh, was famous for its occult activity. In fact, when the Apostle Paul first preached there in Acts chapter 19, that... There was so much occult, there was kind of a revival that broke out. People coming to Christ right and left, some real power encounters with the powers of darkness. And then the result of that is the people came, these new believers came, and they, they took their, their books of sorcery, their books of magic and witchcraft and, and the dark side, and these scrolls were worth a lot of money. They put them in a huge bonfire. They had a, a, big, a big burn. The amount of money that went up in smoke that day was the equivalent of a working man's wage for 160 years. It gives you an idea of the power of the occult in Ephesus. 
And so we come to these new believers. He's writing to them. They, they become followers of Jesus now. What does it mean? What does it mean with the dark side? And so Paul says this in chapter 6 and verse 10. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. He says, you need to put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Now in that one verse, verse 11, he tells us four things. They're very important. He says, first of all, we're in a war. We're in a struggle. Secondly, we have an enemy. His name here is called the devil. Now throughout this series, I will rarely refer to the dark Lord as the devil. And the reason is, in in our culture, it's become a word that's just kind of almost a character. It's almost like a joke. And so in the Bible, the dark Lord goes by many different names. He's called the evil one. He's called Beelzebub. Here he's called uh, the devil, which originally meant diabolos from the Greek. The Greek word is diabolos. And what it means is slanderer or accuser. And so he says that we that we're in a war, we have an enemy. Number three, it tells us in that verse that he's scheming against us. He's strategizing against us. And number four, that we need to be prepared, that we need, to have ar- we need to put on our armor for this battle that we're in. So now he goes on in verse 12, and he tells us more about this battle. He says in verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Now, there will be times in your life and mine where it seems like the struggle is against flesh and blood, but what he's saying is beyond the people, there are the powers that drive the people. And that our, 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 real, our true enemy is not the people. The true enemy is the powers behind the people. And so he said, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And so in a single verse, Paul pulls back the curtain on the unseen world. He says, behind this world that we can see is a world that we cannot see, is a parallel universe. It is a universe that is highly complex, highly sophisticated, hierarchies of incredibly powerful beings, and that this hierarchy is responsible for much of the darkness in this world that we experience. And then he goes on in verse 13. He says, therefore, you need to put on the full armor of God. You need to get prepared so that when the day of evil comes. Now, you may have have experienced this, but did you know this, that in our walk, in our spiritual life, that not all days are created equal? (laughs) There are some days where you're in the sights. There are some days that are days of evil. There are some days the enemy is coming after you. We will talk about that later in the series. But he says that you need to be ready so when that day of evil comes, you can stand your ground against this charge of the enemy. And after you've done everything, to stand, right? And so in this, these four short verses, the Apostle Paul pulls back the veil on this unseen realm. And what we want to do today is we want to step back and I, and I want to talk about what I'm calling the backstory. Uh, what's the backstory to this battle, this war that we're in? There's a section there in your note sheet. It's called the backstory, the history, the players, and the plot. And so today is, is very much a big picture panorama of this cosmic epic battle that's gone on from the beginning of time. 
We want to look at who are the players? How did the war get started? Who is the enemy? What is his objectives? What is his strategy? And take the big picture panorama to set the stage for the rest of the series. And what I've done is I've broken this, this, uh, this backstory down into five chapters of information. Okay? Five, we have five chapters in this backstory we're going to be reading. And so uh, there in your note sheet, let's jump in. Uh, the, first back, the first chapter is the, I'm calling it Satan's story. All right? Let's talk about Satan's story, who he is, where he came from, and so on. Now, frankly, we do not know as much about the enemy as we would like. Um, when you come into the realm of spiritual warfare, there's always a temptation to go beyond what the Bible teaches. There's always a temptation to move into the realm of speculation. It's very dangerous to do. It can get us off track really fast. There's a the great passage in the Old Testament where Moses is talking to the nation of Israel. It's Deuteronomy 29, 29. It's there on your note sheet. And here's what he says. He says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may follow the words of the law. Now, notice there's two kinds of spiritual information. He says there are secret things and there are revealed things. So there are certain things that God has revealed. Why has he revealed them? So that we can follow them and have success in our life. There are secret things, things that God has chosen not to reveal. Now here's what the problem is. When we as followers of Jesus try to speculate about secret things, we always get off track. That we just have to accept there's certain limitations. There's certain things about the unseen realm that God has chosen not to tell us that would not be helpful for the battle right now. And we just have to accept that limitation. And when Christians don't accept this limitation, we get really off track fast. In fact, if you've been a, a Christ follower for any length of time, you've probably seen this. Where whole churches or movements come, new books are written on spiritual warfare, uh, uh, new theories come down, new seminars. And, and so they'll always be really complex, and they're going to tell you the secret, the, tr- the secret truth about spiritual warfare. And so they're going to be very complex. They might talk about the hierarchy of angels and demons and how it all works, you know. Uh, they might talk about territorial spirits or generational sins, or they might teach you how to cast out demons of someone. Oh, you're struggling with lust? You have a demon of lust. Let's cast out the demon of lust. And there's a whole approach to spiritual warfare that's really not found in the Bible at all. And so one of the temptations is to speculate, to go beyond what the Bible's written. And we want to be very careful in the series not to do that because it will destroy us and give the enemy the upper hand. Okay? So um, when we come to the question, who is this enemy, there's certain things we know about him. We know he's an enemy of God and he's an enemy of all that's good and right and true. All that's best in life, Satan hates. Love, relationships, friendships, he hates this stuff, okay? He's an enemy of all that's good and right and true. We know that. We know that he is incredibly brilliant. We know he is powerful. This week in your life group homework, you'll be studying the story of Job and some other passages that show the wide array, uh, array of powerful weapons that he has at his disposal. Uh, we know that he is very strategic. He's scheming against you. He's scheming against the whole world. We know that. We know that he is the ruler of this world. He's in charge of the dark planet. We understand that. Um, we know that he's out to kill us, out to destroy us. There's certain things we know. But there's a lot we don't know, especially about his personal history. It's like, you know, on TV they have like the biography channel, right? So in other words, if we did a show on Satan, it would be very short. You know, a lot of commercials. 
We don't know a lot about his personal history. Now, we, we, what we do know, we have some clues about it. And the clues would lead us to believe that Satan was once one of the highest-ranking angels in the kingdom. Now, to understand what that means, first of all, we have to destroy our conception of an angel, right? When I say angel, the file that comes up in most of your little computers up here uh, is like uh, the Hallmark card, right? Or it's like uh, uh, the little fat boy, you know, with the, the bow or something like that, you know? They kind of the cherubs hanging around the Renaissance paintings, right? Hey, when, when the angel shows up in the Bible, the standard protocol for saying hello is to fall on your face terrified, okay? That's what happens in the Bible when angels show up. These are warriors, brilliant, powerful. And the evidence would suggest, the clues would suggest in the Bible that Satan was one of the top leaders of God's uh, universe, And that at a certain point, he led a rebellion against God, and as a result, was banished from heaven. Now, for example, in the New Testament, we're going to look real quickly at three passages that give us some clues about this, okay? So there in your note sheet, the first passage is in 2 Peter chapter 2. And it says, uh, God's, I mean, Peter's writing says, God did not spare angels when they sinned. So at some point in distant past, there was a rebellion. Angels sinned. He didn't spare them, but he sent them to hell, putting them to the gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. Right? Let's look at the next one from Jude chapter 6. The angels who did not keep their positions of authority. So there were some angels at some point that were under God's authority. They had certain things they were in charge of. They didn't keep those positions of authority. They usurped their authority. And they abandoned their home. And in these he's kept, God's kept these in darkness. They're bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the uh, the great day. The next passage, Jesus himself one time, just an offhand way, in in Matthew 25, it's the story of the sheep and the goats. And uh, the sheep represent uh, those who follow him, the goats, those who don't. And he says, uh, then God will say to those on his left, these are the goats that haven't followed Jesus, uh, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for who? The devil and his angels. And so hell was not originally created for the human race. It was created for the devil and his angels. It's only become a destination for the human race when we joined the rebellion. See, when we joined the side. All right? So the New Testament clearly gives us the sense that, that it would appear that Satan was a high-ranking angel, that there was some sort of rebellion. He got banished from heaven. But if you ask the question, well, are we ever given details about this story in a clear way? The answer is no. What we are given is a couple passages that are some very strong clues. And they're both in the Old Testament. They both come from prophets. So one's in the prophet Isaiah, one's the prophet Ezekiel. So I'm going to set this up, and then we're going to look at the passages. So the prophet uh, uh, Isaiah, the prophet Ezekiel, they talk about two foreign kings, Kings that were human kings that were enemies of Israel. They're oppressors. The king of Babylon, the king of Tyre. And as the prophets look down the corridors of time, they're prophesying about the fall of these kings one day. And as they're prophesying about the fall, at a certain point in their prophecy, the language becomes transcendent. 
it suddenly sounds like we've switched from an earthly king to something more than earthly. It's, it's almost like you're, you're talking about the evil king, and now we're talking about the power behind the evil king. You'll see what I, I mean. And so most Bible scholars believe that these are actually references to the dark Lord who is behind the thrones of these earthly kingdoms. In the same way that there are passages in the Old Testament that talk about the coming of a king of Israel, but at a certain point they become very transcendent. And oh, now we're talking about the Messiah. We're no longer talking just about the human king. We're talking about the Messiah. So it almost be like dark side prophecies. So let's go and look at one. Let's go to uh, uh, Isaiah 14. There's only two of them. But the first one's Isaiah 14. Isaiah in the Old Testament, somewhere near the middle. Okay, Isaiah 14. Now, remember, this is the prophet Isaiah looking down the quarters of time. And he says in verse 3, he's prophesying a day when this king of Babylon, who's been oppressing Israel in the future, when he... And when that day, when that king will be dethroned. So he says, on the, day, on the day the Lord gives you, Israel, relief from suffering and turmoil and cruel bondage, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. So at some future point, God's going to dethrone him, you're going to get relief, and you're going to pick up this taunt against this fallen king. And then he goes on to describe this taunt. But when you get down to verse 12, this is where the language becomes very transcendent. He says in verse 12, How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. Now, if you happen to have a King James Bible today, it will actually say, How you've fallen, O Lucifer. One of the names for Satan is Lucifer. It's the only place in the Bible it's ever called. That's only in the King James Version it's called that. But it's an it's, it's a, it's a understanding the translators that, that we, and the king who do the translators of the King James, that we think this is talking about the dark Lord. So, how you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. You can see how it's sounding more than a human ruler. I will sit enthroned in the mount of assembly at the, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds, and I will make myself like the most high. Now, it's interesting. In the Garden of Eden, when the evil one comes to the first man, first woman, remember what he said. If you disobey God on this issue, you will become like God. Same exact uh, temptation. Verse 14, I will ascend to the tops of the clouds. I'll make myself like the most high. And then God says, but you are brought down to the, to the grave, to the depths of the pit. And so like I say, most Bible scholars look at this and say, we think we see something here. We, we think there's more that's going on than a human king. Now, the second passage is even more interesting. So turn to the right in your Bibles just a little bit to the book of Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel 28, <coughs> and now the prophet is looking down the quarters of time to the fall of the king of Tyre, one of their enemies. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, this is what God would always call Ezekiel, son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, 
This is what the sovereign Lord says. You were, a, you were the model of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Now, wait a second. Uh, you were in Eden? I mean, who was in Eden? I mean, there was Adam, Eve, God, and Satan, right? We, we know this is not Adam, Eve, or God. And so, so it seems like we're moving into this transcendent language about the evil one. So if that's true, I want you to go back to verse 11, verse 12, the middle of the verse. And I want you to notice what was said about the dark Lord, that you were the model of perfection. You were full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. And I want you to catch this. We think of Satan as the epitome of evil. Isn't it amazing to think there was a time when he was the epitome of all that was good and right and true? That there was a time when he was full of wisdom. There was a time when he was full of beauty. There was a time when all that was good and right and true in life, he was the picture of perfection. He was full of love. He was full of grace. He was full of integrity and full of courage and full of loyalty. You see, oh, how the mighty have fallen. You see, so let's move on. Let's go to verse 14. So God tells us a little bit more now. You were, or, you were anointed as a guardian cherub. A cherub is a high-level angel. Um, you may have heard of the cherubim. That cherubim is the plural of cherub. And so he was a high-level angel. You are anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. And now it just gets really mystical and cool. It says, you were on the holy mount of God, and you walked among the fiery stones. Wow. I just feel like I stepped into Lord of the Rings or something, you know? Wow. What? There's this guardian cherub, high-level Lord, who's able, has permission, a few people do apparently, to walk upon the fiery stones. Oh, doesn't that sound kind of cool? Like, I don't even know what that's about. But it's like, that just sounds cool. You're walking on the fiery stones in the presence of God. You know, you have the right to be in the presence of God. You know, sometimes I wish that we could go to the Bible with new eyes. I believe that the Bible is the most amazing epic drama in the history of the world. I love Lord of the Rings. I love epic dramas. And it was years ago when God began to show me what an epic drama the Bible is. It's a story of kings and prophets and priests, of mystery, a story of supernatural things, fire coming from heaven. It's the ultimate epic drama. And here we're given a scene from the beginning of time, perhaps even before the beginning of time, when the presence of God, this one of, top God, one of the top creations, walked in the fiery stones. And now you can understand his humiliation to be sent to the fire of hell. You see? So he goes on. And he says, For you are on the holy mount of God. You walked on the fiery stones. And the catch is, you were blameless in all your ways. There was a time when this Lord was a perfect expression of God's character. From the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. So at some point, this rebellion... 
Though your wide, through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. And so I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God. Notice that, in disgrace, he was humiliated. He was driven from the mount of God. I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud. And that's Satan's core sin. The old theologians would tell us that all sin is an extension of the sin of pride. And so I drove you from disgrace. Your heart, verse 17, your heart became proud on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom. So he was brilliant, but his, his, his brilliance got twisted for become brilliance for the dark side. And because of your splendor, and so I threw you to the earth and I made a spectacle of you before kings. Now, doesn't this sound epic? It sound amazing. The dark life. I was thinking about this week. You know the picture that comes to my mind from kind of current genre is Darth Vader. And I'm really serious about this. Think back to Star Trek 1. Right? That when, when, when the Jedi Knight fell, right, and he became Darth Vader, the enemy of all that's right and good and true. I think it's a beautiful picture of the dark side. It's a beautiful picture. Now, here's an important thing. If we've got this right, if we're interpreting the clues correctly, that he's a fallen cherub, a cherub being one of the cherub being, one of the highest fallen, and that he fell out of rebellion due to his pride and so on. If that is true, this is very important for you to catch because throughout this series, I'm going to drill in this end. We have an enemy. He's brilliant. He's powerful. He's strategic. I'm going to be drilling that in over and over, but I want to say this really clearly, that if we've got the story right, he is not the opposite of God. Okay. He, he opposes God. He's the enemy of God, but he is not the opposite of God. Satan is not the dark side of the force, right? If we go back to Star Trek theology here for a second, he's not, God's not the light side. He's the dark side. No, he's a created being. God could snuff him out at a moment's notice, any moment's notice, you see. He is our enemy. He is our Darth Vader. He is not the dark side of the force. You say that we, we, we have a God who's over all of that. It's important to stay clear on that. Okay, so, so that's his story. We'll come back later and talk a little bit more about his objective in our lives. But that's enough, I think, for now to talk about his story. Let's go on to chapter 2 and talk about our story. In our story, uh, yeah, chapter 2 is our story. And so this chapter 1 raises a question. Okay, if Satan is, got kicked out of heaven, he lost the battle, then how did he ever come to rule on this planet, on planet Earth? And, and the answer from the, the Bible gives is that we gave him that right. We turned over the planet to him. If you were here for the last series, uh, The Marriage Matrix, we talked about this a lot, how we were created as human beings to rule, but at a certain point we chose, instead of following the true king of the universe, we chose to follow the evil one. And when we chose to follow him, we became under his rule, under his authority, under, and we turned over the planet we were supposed to rule to the dark side. He became what the New Testament calls the ruler of this world. And the New Testament's really clear on this. And I want to just take like two examples of this. So I want you to take your Bibles, go to Ephesians chapter 2. This is the same letter we started the day with, when Ephesians 6, about the powers, the authorities. So these believers trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus, what that looks like, trying to understand what happened to them. They just came to Jesus. And so Paul's explaining this in chapter 2 and verse 1, what happened. <clears throat> 
chapter 2, verse 1, it says, As for you, you uh, Ephesian Christians, uh, you were once dead in your transgressions and sins. So this is part of our story and the race. When the first man, the first woman, chose to rebel against God, they were warned that if you rebel, you will die. And that death took uh, all, uh, several forms. It, it was total. It was complete. It was, it was death uh, spiritually, our relationship with God, our awareness of his presence in our life. We died there. Uh, it was death morally that something broke inside of us. Our character changed. We were no longer like God. We became fallen people. Uh, we broke and died relationally. We saw that in the last series, the conflict that broke out between Adam and Eve the moment they broke. And then, but it's also death physically. We're no longer immortal. Our bodies will give out. And so, so what, that's what he's referring to here. He's saying that before you came to Jesus, you were dead, you know. And in verse 2, he says, in, uh, in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live as you followed the ways of this world, and of, catch this, of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. What the apostle is saying here is that whether you know it or not, before we come to Jesus, we are under the control of the evil one. That he runs the ways of this world and the whole planet is under his control, under his leadership. Whether we realize it or not, it's a pretty strong statement. But the rest of the New Testament just backs us up. I want you to look at one other passage. Let's go to 1 John, the very back of your Bible. If you hit Revelation, just put it in reverse. Go back to the left a little bit. So 1 John chapter 5. And look what the Apostle John writes, 1 John chapter 5 and verse 19. I'm just waiting for the flipping to stop. Verse 19. Okay, we know that we are children of God. We as followers of Jesus, we've been born again. We've come into his family now. We know that we are children of God. And catch this, the whole world is under the control of whom? The evil one. This is the dark planet. This is hostile soil, enemy-invaded soil that we, that we live on, okay? And so, so that's our story, that we rebelled against the true king. We came under slavery to Satan himself because here's a very important spiritual principle. Whatever you obey in life becomes your, your Lord. Whatever you obey becomes your leader. And so we chose to obey Satan. He became our leader. We came under his control. That's our story. Let's talk next about chapter 3. Chapter 3 is Jesus' story. So how does Jesus fit into this cosmic story? Well, Jesus came to take back the cosmos for the creator. It was an invasion move. Jesus coming to planet Earth was the, the landing it was an invasion. It was a spiritual D-Day when the forces of God began their assault to take back the planet. That's what the coming of Jesus was. You know, we, we'll talk about this when we get to the Christmas season. We, we'll talk about on Christmas Day uh, and that, that weekend service. We'll talk about, when we think of Christmas, we think of mangers and wise men. No, no, no. We need to pan back that picture. Christmas is about a retaking of the planet. It's an invasion. 
And so Jesus comes to take back the planet. He comes to break the spell that we're under. He comes to free the hostages that have been taken by this enemy ruler. You see, it's a, it's a hostage, eva- hostage evacuation movement. It's a military move. It's a kingdom move. That's why you use military language, kingdom language. You see, he came to launch his kingdom. In fact, the apostle John puts it this way on your note sheet. He said, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. See, he came to destroy it. Now, you see this throughout Jesus' ministry. Once you put on this lens and you look at the New Testament, you'll see this all over the place. For example, when Jesus showed up, the very first thing he did in his ministry was baptized. The Holy Spirit came upon him. The very first thing the Holy Spirit led him to do was to go out in the wilderness for 40 days of spiritual warfare with Satan, be tempted. And it was only after he won that initial skirmish, that initial battle, that Jesus came back. In Luke's gospel, it says he came back in the power of the Spirit. And the way you knew it, he had power was he was casting out demons wherever he went. In fact, uh, what he, see, he'd, he'd overcome the evil one in the wilderness, battle number one. He now had authority. He was casting them out. Um, the apostle Peter, after Jesus has gone back to heaven 10, 15 years later, he's sharing the message of Jesus with a Roman soldier named Cornelius and his family. It's recorded in Acts chapter 10. Look how he describes the ministry of Jesus in battle terms here. Acts 10, uh, 37, he says, Cornelius, you know what happened in Judea, throughout Judea, southern, uh, southern Israel, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power at his baptism, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil. It was an invasion movement. Jesus himself uses this language. Um, one of the things he was criticized by the spiritual leaders of his day. Hey, the reason, Jesus, you're able to cast out demons is because you are partnering with Satan. And Jesus says, no, that is not the reason. The reason I am casting out demons is because I've kicked down the enemy's door, I've tied him up, threw him in a corner, and I'm ripping off all his stuff. That's what really is happening. So look at, look at exactly what he says in Matthew chapter 12, the next passage. When the Pharisees heard about this, they said, it's only by Beelzebub, which is the name for Satan, another name, it's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow is driving out demons. And Jesus' response is, no, he says, if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The assault has begun, you see. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house, which represents Satan's house in this story, how can you enter a strong man's house and carry off his stuff and rip him off unless he first ties up the strong man? And then he can rob his house. Jesus says, I'm in a, I'm ripping off the enemy. I'm breaking into his house. I'm stealing back what doesn't belong to him. You see, that's what I'm about. Now, the ultimate blow in this, in this battle that Jesus fought came on at the cross. Because you see, the reason the enemy has the right to rule is because we gave him the right. And and because of that sin, he has the right to rule. And so Jesus came to die on the cross to pay the price for that sin so that the enemy would no longer have the power to rule. He came to disarm the enemy. And if you look at your note sheet in Colossians, it's exactly what it says. Colossians 1.19. It says, uh, God was pleased to have all his fullness, all the deity, dwell in him, in Jesus. And through Jesus, to reconcile to himself. Notice, not just our lives, to reconcile 
uh, all things, whether things in heaven and things on earth, by making peace through the blood shed on his cross. Jesus came to reclaim the cosmos in its entirety for God. Uh, next verse, Colossians 2.13. He said, when you, you Colossians, you were dead in your sins, you know, before you came to Jesus. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us our sins. And catch this, and having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them. He humiliated them, triumphing over them by the cross. So Satan thought he'd won. He had Jesus where he wanted. He's killing the Son of God. And what he didn't understand was that no, that this was Jesus fighting battle at his best, that he was paying the price. And once that price was paid, there is no reason for any man or any woman to stay under bondage anymore. The price has been paid, and now the freedom, the evacuation of the hostages can begin. And so the Apostle Paul puts it this way. Um, well, that's good enough for now. Let's go on chapter 4. Chapter 4. Okay, let's talk about salvation stories. So we, we, we're kind of getting the flow of this thing. What does it mean to be saved? Well, as we've seen, whether we know it or not, before we come to Jesus, we are under Satan's control. We are under his rule. And so to become a follower of Jesus means that we are crossing enemy lines. We are switching sides in this cosmic battle. We are going back to be followers of the true king. We are escaping the enemy's uh, camp. Now, interesting, the Apostle Paul, before he was the Apostle Paul, he was killing Christians. And one day he was riding to a city of Damascus to arrest Christians. And on his way there, Jesus appeared to him in this vision and knocked him off his horse. And once he had his attention, he said, okay, I've got a commission for you. I've got a job for you. I've got a job assignment. I'm sure Paul was like, okay, I'm paying attention. You got my attention. Now, let's look and see what, what Jesus said was his assignment. There in your note sheet, Acts 26, 17. He said, I'm sending you to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins. You see, this is Paul's job assignment. I am sending you out to break the spell that's over the human race. I'm sending you out to turn from their eyes from darkness to light. They can see the truth for the first time in their lives. I'm sending you out to free them from Satan's control to move into the kingdom. You see? Salvation is a switching of sides. It's an awakening. It's an awakening to the truth about life, a truth about the creator, the truth about the cosmos, the truth about the war. It's a switching of sides. That's why the Apostle Paul in Colossians 1, there in your note sheet, he describes salvation this way. He says, he has rescued us. See, it's hostage language. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. He's brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. We have switched sides in this cosmic battle. Okay, now here's the thing, though. When you give your life to Jesus, now some of you haven't given your life to Jesus yet. If you've not yet, let me tell you what's going to happen. A lot of things are going to happen when you give your life to Jesus. Your eyes are going to be open. You're going to be connected with God. You're going to come alive in a new way you've never experienced before. Okay, the Bible calls it being born again. But here's also what's going to happen. Every person 
that gives their life to Jesus and crosses the line, they get a new tattoo on their chest. It's a target. It's a bullseye. Because you have just switched sides in a cosmic war. And before, you were no threat to the evil one. You were under his control. You were under his dominion. But now you've become a threat. You've become dangerous. Can I tell you something? I believe God has a vision for this church, and it's to be dangerous. That God has called us to be part of this hostage-taking movement. We don't come here to hide out from the world. We come here to get prepared for battle. See, we are called as a church to be part of this movement. It's a movement that kicks down doors, that ties up the enemy, that takes back God's stuff. You see, that's our calling. And when a a person becomes a follower of Jesus, they now have a target on them because the enemy knows you are dangerous. I love that clip we saw, Braveheart. He goes back to his buddies. He said, great speech. Now what do we do? He said, just be yourselves. Just be yourselves because you're dangerous. And as a church of Jesus, we need to lose our fear of the enemy and realize he's afraid of us. Jesus said the gates of hell would not stand against us. You see, you look at the life of the early church in the book of Acts. They're not huddled in the corner. After the Spirit comes, they're taking new territory. People are coming, hostages are coming out of the kingdom of darkness every day. That church is moving. That church is expanding. They're taking over the world. You see, that's the church that Jesus calls us to be. It's the church that has the heart of a warrior. I believe this series is part of that. To say that God is creating us the heart of a warrior. Did you see in the Braveheart clip those people that, the, uh, that didn't want to fight at first? No, we don't want to fight. We don't want to fight. Many times the church of Jesus is like that. We don't want to fight. We'll get killed. We might get injured. No, they need to be awakened to their true calling. You see, they become part of the king. And the moment you do that, there is a new bullseye on you. The enemy will come after you. So let's move to chapter 5. Chapter 5 in the story is Satan's story, part 2. Now, we've already talked <coughs> about a little bit of Satan's story, where he came from, what he's about, his schemes, his brilliance, and so on. <coughs> but I want to talk to you just a little bit about his objective in our lives. And we're going to talk more about this a lot. We're going to talk, next week, we're going to unpack this a lot. What is Satan up to in the human race? What is he up to in your life? The bottom line is he's out to destroy you. It's hard to understand how evil the dark Lord is. There's no possible way we can truly understand this. There's no possible way for you to understand how much he hates you. Jesus um, was once in a conversation with spiritual leaders who were out to kill him, and he, he said something very profound. He says in John 8, 44, you can check it out later. But he said to them, he said, You are of your father, the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning. What are you talking about, Jesus? Murder from the beginning. Well, think back to the garden. Think back to what God said. Don't do this. If you rebel against my leadership, you cut yourself off from the Lord of life, the source of all life, all that's right and good and true. All that's left is death. You need to follow the Lord of life. And if you don't, you will die in every way. And what does Satan do? 
He comes to kill. He is the ultimate mass murderer. He hates our race. You know why? Because we bear the image of God. And he can't get back at God. So the only way to get back at God is to get back at God's kids. He hates the race. You know, in First Peter, the Apostle Paul puts us in very graphic language we often miss if we've been Christians, so we're just familiar with it. It's there on your note sheet, First Peter 5, 7. He says, be self-controlled and alert, be on your game, because your enemy, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, to chew on, to, to consume. Can I tell you something? Satan is hungry for your life. Every time a man or a woman lights up a crack pot, he gets off on that. He has a hunger in his life for people to be destroyed. Every time someone gets addicted to alcohol, he gets off on that. It satisfies a hunger that's in him to destroy. Every time a marriage gets broken up and gets torn up, he gets off on that. He loves destruction. He feeds off it. He lives for it. He consumes it. He lives to consume human souls. We started today with a story of a serial killer. Some of you recognize as Jeffrey Dahmer. A man who became so obsessed with evil that he was down to killing one man a week, cutting his body up, eating his body. I didn't share that story to be sensational. I didn't share that story for shock value. I shared that story because it's a picture of what happens in a person's life when Satan sucks the life out of them. Can I tell you something? If you think that Satan is less evil than Jeffrey Dahmer, we've got a lot to learn. Can I tell you something? That Jeffrey Dahmer is a shadow compared to the Dark Lord. He is out to consume you. I want you to think of the, the most evil person in human history, who would that be? Would it be Nero? Would that be Hitler? Would that be Mussolini? Would that be Saddam? Who would be the most evil? You picture him. And let me tell you something. That person is a shadow of the dark Lord. He lives to consume us. Now, the good news is that once we become a follower of Jesus, we come under his personal protection. We come under the protection. Um, and the Bible says, a greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And we become under his personal protection once we switch sides. In fact, <clears throat> there on your note sheet, the great verse, 1 John 5, where it says that you, we know that anyone who's been born of God, anyone who gives their life to Jesus and is born again, does not continue to sin. They don't continue a life of ongoing rebellion. The one who is born of God, speaking of Jesus, he keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. And so there's a protection there. We come, when we switch sides, we come under the protection. Satan's goal in life is to make you afraid. Jesus says you don't need to be afraid, but you do need to be alert. Because we are in the midst of a very real war with a very real enemy with very real casualties. 
And if we don't know what we're doing, we will lose. And so that's what we want to do in this series. In the next four weeks, we're going to come back. And we're going to talk next week about uh, Satan's goal for your life. This is like a high-stakes poker game to him. And this, the stakes are your life. We're going to talk about what he's after in your life, how to recognize when he's at work. We're going to talk in the next two weeks about strategy then. We're going to talk about uh, high-level strategy, spiritual warfare at the highest level, which is at the a level of cultural ideas. Highest level of, of satanic strategy is not individual temptation. It's the controlling the way a whole culture thinks. If he can control the way we think as a culture, he can destroy the whole culture. He doesn't even have to tempt you. You just do it anyway. The next week, we're going to talk about his tactical strategy. We're talking about temptation, his strategy to destroy us, what that's about, how that works. We're going to do an, autop- an autopsy of a temptation. We're going to do like CSI thing on it. How does it happen? How does it work? And then the last week, we're going to talk about the solution. What does it take to win in this war that we're involved in? As we wrap it up, I want to end with a quote here. It's a quote from John Eldridge, his book, Wild at Heart. He says, behind the world and the flesh is an even more deadly enemy. It's one we rarely speak of and are even more or less, like, less ready to resist. Yet this is where we, we are now. We live now on the front lines of a fierce spiritual war that is to blame for most of the casualties you see around you and most of the assault against you. It's time we prepare for it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for, uh, for what you're doing. Thank you for this series. Thank you for bringing it to us. God, we just look to you to be our teacher the next four weeks as we continue on. And we understand this battle we're in, the enemy we're up against, what his tactics are, and how to stand firm and to win this war. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God, what can we say? What can we do but offer this heart completely to you? God, we stand with arms raised, heart abandoned, in awe of the one God we stand in awe Lord we want to be a part of that we want to be a part of that movement Lord we want to hide away from the world we want you to charge us up strengthen us heal us Send us out, Lord, to take hostages. God, we pray this place would be a light on a hill. We pray it would be a a fortress for your kingdom. A place where raids go out every week. Raids in your name. To plunder the enemy, his property. And to bring him back for your kingdom, your rightful ruler. So God, we, we stand with arms raised, hearts abandoned. We want to march with you. God, we pray that you be freeing us in this series from those areas where the enemy has a foothold in our life that's keeping us from the battle. We pray that you'd free us up from fears that we might have. We pray, Lord, that you'd create in us the heart of a warrior as we move forward in this series the next four weeks. We pray it for your name and for the sake of your kingdom and your movement. Amen. May the Lord be with you this week. I hope you can join us next week as we dive in deeper to what Satan's strategy, his stakes. What are the stakes in this, this uh, war that we're in? He's after you, how to recognize that, how to deal with that. 
And so next week, uh, we'll be back at it again. May the Lord bless you this week. May he be with you. May he protect you and guide you as we proceed on in this war together. See you next weekend. Well, that's going to do it for this week's message. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have putting it together. Please visit us at rockypeak.org where you can download more messages or have your questions answered. Remember, you can subscribe to our weekly podcast for free by searching for The Church at Rocky Peak from within the music store in your iTunes software. For lead pastor Mike Yearly and everybody up here at The Peak, thanks for listening.